this morning. We get to, we get to break from what we've been doing in the book of 1 Samuel and look at a, at a topic that is just incredibly relevant uh, for our lives. Um, as we have been trying to support uh, the pastors who've lost their homes in the fires uh, this past year, we're at about 19 still, uh, a team of pastors are doing that. We've heard some pretty sad things uh, in those conversations, as you can imagine. And it's not only the circumstances themselves, having to kind of live in this disoriented life now where all your things are gone and you replace everything and you're not sure what's what and track it down paperwork and just the sadness of that. But it's also been, as, as we talked with them, a sadness in hearing sometimes the insensitivity uh, that comes through uh, when they talk with other people. And so, for whatever reason, we can think that pastors kind of live in this spiritual fantasy world where things don't affect them in the same way. There's like this cushion that somehow happens that our lives are just easier and things like losing your house are easier. And uh, so, anyway, some things have been said uh, to them by just well-meaning people. And uh, I bring these up also as a way to maybe help us uh, to avoid some, uh, some of the pitfalls of, uh, as we approach the one-year anniversary of the fires and, and talking with folks who've lost their homes, just to be wise in that. But here are some of the things that these pastors have heard from people. God is giving you an opportunity to focus on the spiritual, not the material. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. They're just things. What a great opportunity to replace old things and move into a new house. It's already been a year and you're still, you're still struggling with the emotions of this. These are some of the things that are actually being said to people in this position. Now, some of those things are just dumb to say. Okay, let's just be really frank about that. Um, some of those things are scripture, right? So that's not dumb to say, right? That's God's word, but... It's not in the content of what's being said. It's the timing of when it's said that makes it awkward and makes it off-putting. So, for example, a funny proverb that I like, Proverbs 27, 14, says this. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. But I'm just blessing my neighbor. It's six in the morning, but good words at the wrong time are the wrong words. Good words at the wrong time are the wrong words. The book of James teaches us that death and life are in the power of your tongue. And so the book of Proverbs, what it's going to do is to help you know how to wield that weapon well. How to use it in a way that's helpful. So Proverbs doesn't only talk about what you should say, but it talks about when you should say it. Almost as much time, by the way, interestingly enough. You could argue that when we speak actually matters as much as what we speak. Something to think about. Now this morning is, is going to be uh, different in that we would normally stand and read God's word together. Uh, but Proverbs is a different type of writing 
where there are two lines. And the value of looking at a topic through Proverbs is by looking at a lot of them together. Okay? So it'd be like, you'd burn calories if we did this, right? Every time we read the scripture this morning, you'd be standing and sitting and standing and sitting. So we're not going to do that this morning, but it's just for more practical purposes. We still revere the word of God, um, but Proverbs just doesn't afford it the same kind of thing, okay? So as you look at your little outline this morning, as we think about, well, how can we wield this weapon of our tongue to do good and not evil? There's a very simple way, the main point of what we're going to say this morning, and that's this. The wise wait, fools don't. The wise wait, fools don't. I'm going to warn you that you might identify with some of the things that I bring up this morning because it is so hard to master the tongue, right? To keep control over what you say and how you say it. But the wise person pauses and ponders before he speaks. So... And you can write these addresses down and look them up later. Uh, it's, it's probably going to be a little bit hard to, to flip to every one. But 1528, Proverbs 1528 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 1223 says, A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Conceals even knowledge, something that's good and fine, even conceals that. But fools, are, they're always talking without any kind of filter on, right? Have you ever met someone like that? So 18, Proverbs 18, too. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Ever met someone who's opinionated about everything? Maybe you're that person this morning. <laughs> 18.6, a fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Walks into a fight. No filter, no discernment, no timing. 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Full vent. No degrees, no variation. All or Nothing. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You get the idea, okay? The wise wait, fools don't. What's the average amount of time you expect to wait when we ask someone a question? It's been interesting when you interact with people of different cultures, there's different kind of time periods. And I think America probably, or uh, North America, kind of lands on the very short end of that spectrum. Like if you, if you don't get an answer within a one, one and a half seconds, like something is wrong and you start feeling out of place. I, I knew a man once who spent a lot of time uh, in England and he paused for so long after you asked him something. And it was so awkward just because it was different than what you're used to. But I remember talking to him. And, so what do you think about that? Maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds, which is not a lot of time, right, when you really think about it. It's smart. And so, but his words, they weighed a lot. They mattered. They were filtered. They were, they were cautious. They were wise. And you just wonder, what would it be like if I added three seconds, four seconds, the amount of time before I respond. 
It's, if you think about it, you can draw a sports analogy where you're, uh, you're deciding when to use your timeouts in, in sports, whether it's basketball or football, not baseball, but other sports, where there's timeouts. Because there's sometimes there's a, there's a pace that things are going, or there's a momentum, or there's a need for an emotional cool down for the team, or there's different things where coaches need to use wisdom to know when to call a timeout. And I think in a lot of ways it's similar to how we speak. It requires wisdom. Oh, Lord, this is, this is going to be involved. I'm going to need just a minute to, to think about this and collect myself. Now, why would Proverbs say that it's wise to, to think and ponder before we speak? Why would we wait? Why do we need to wait? Well, if I just ran up to you and said, well, just wait here and I'll be right back. How long would you wait? For me, it'd probably depend on why you were waiting, right? Are you tied to a tree and I'm going to get a knife to like cut the rope to let you out? Do I have to go deal with an emergency type of situation where you kind of know ah, it's iffy if I'll see him again? Are you in desperation asking for help and so uh, you, you're gonna wait because you desire the help? Why are we waiting? Is the question. Well, and, and what are we supposed to do when we're waiting? Let's say you took, you know, the 10 seconds that my British friend did. What are you doing during the 10 seconds, right? I think Proverbs has, has three different questions that we can ask ourselves to, to be more wise in what we say, okay? Because there's hundreds of ways to misspeak, right? I've found almost all of them. Um, but there's a lot of ways you can mess this up. So I'm just going to try to group these into three questions that we can ask. Uh, before we speak. Question number one, should I say this at all? Should I say this at all? There's a lot of different scenarios in the book of Proverbs. Uh, in chapter uh, 9 is our first example. Chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Where it says this. Whoever corrects a scoffer that's someone who's kind of mocking you, not really interested in what you're saying. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So one of the ways that Proverbs says, just, just don't say anything at all, is when you know you're dealing with this scoffer type of person, a person who's not really interested in what you have to say. And if you try to correct such a person, it just makes things worse. Have you ever done that? If you're thinking, I just got to get this off my chest, that's a sign. That's a problem, I would say. And I'll give you a 95% chance that ain't going to land well. And it's not going to be useful. If you have to get this off your chest, guess who you're thinking about? Yourself, right? But when the Bible talks about how we correct one another, there's a sensitivity to where the other person is. Is this going to land? Is this going to help? If it's not going to help, if it's not going to land, don't say it. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 has some great things to say about this uh, as kind of a preparation. You know, when you're all fired up and you're ready to shoot off that email, Galatians 6 helps you. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
A spirit of gentleness has to be there. If you just have to say something, you shouldn't say it. And I mean that with, out of anger and out of frustration. You know, the, it's always more complicated than what your mom always told you, which is kind of true. So I'll give you some credit to moms. But the, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all, right? You ever heard that from your mom? You might have something really good to say, but it's not going to land. And the person's not open to hearing. So it's really a matter of how do you define good if you have anything good to say, right? Ephesians helps us here too in 4.29. Listen to the specific words of this. This is probably the, the best verse in the New Testament that I came across that helps us. It says this, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a great verse to memorize. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is this going to build up? Is this the right time? Those are questions that can be going through our minds. So with correction, we need to be wise about, should I say this at all? How about, this might be more obvious, but uh, insulting people. Proverbs 11, 12 through 13. says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Again, Insults, keep them to yourself. Slander, no. Don't, don't share that with other people. Chapter 12, verse 16. Uh, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. When someone insults you and you've got like 10 zingers ready to roll in response. Silent. Don't say it at all. You might win like sarcasm points in the insult game, but you lose in the end, right? Chapter 19, verse 11, another really practical. Isn't the Bible just so practical? These pictures out of Proverbs are just wonderful. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory to overlook an offense. Now, there's a, there's a qualifier here that we have to say because the Bible also tells us when someone sins against us to go to them, right, and to work it out and to talk through it. Go directly to the person. Don't talk about to Sally and Joe about the person and have a little court session and weigh in on what Jerry did. And, no, 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 straight to the person. So the question is, how, when do you overlook the offense and when do you go to the person, right? And I would say there's, there's a difference between Something that you know that you can overlook and it won't impact the way that you interact with that person in the future. And then there's things that just nag at you and gnaw at you and just cause you to stew and resent them and be unloving towards them and be less generous towards them and those kinds of things. And I think that's where that, that layer of wisdom lies where you say, you've got to address the things that are gnawing at you, the things that are affecting your love for the other person. But if you can overlook it and you can keep moving for the sake of the relationship then do that. It's a glory to overlook an offense. 
mean, imagine if you corrected every single time anyone said anything or did anything wrong against you. Parenting would be impossible, right? I mean, like, let's just say that. So we have to be wise in not insulting, not slandering, but also in how we receive insults and offenses. It's not saying don't feel hurt by things. It's just saying weigh what you're saying, because anger can blind you, can't it? Anger can just, you can be so self-justifying when you're in your anger. One last one for when we should say it at all is Proverbs 29.5. 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. What is that about? A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattery is when you are complimenting another person for your own benefit. You want to be liked by them or you want something from them. And so you're flattering them. You're complimenting them. And it can sound very, the same, very similar to when you're just encouraging someone. But your motivation is to get something back. So what this proverb is saying, it's like laying a net on the ground, uh, pumping up their pride, and doing something where it's just really for yourself in the end. You're spreading a net for them. You're setting a trap for them, really, to be proud so beware of flattery. So the first question we can ask when we're, when we're waiting, should I say this at all? You know, uh, that's a question we don't ask a lot. We just assume that what's going on in our head, yeah, that's got to come out, right? The world will not be right until I make this statement. It'll be fine. It will. Keep it to yourself. So staying silent is a great thing. Sometimes, though, people can stay silent because of fear. So I also, again, the Proverbs, they're not, they're not promises. Proverbs aren't always true in every circumstance, in every situation. Proverbs are meant to be generally true. If you live your life according to Proverbs, your life will be a lot better. But Job is also in the Bible, Right? And that kind of just spins Proverbs on its head to say there are times, there are exceptions to this, there are ways that we can, we can you, a person who's afraid of confrontation could think, well, I'm just going to be silent and always do that and never ever have the courage that the Bible commands us to have to speak and to address issues with another person. So you have to be wise in this. Don't let fear dictate to you when you should say something or not. Now, do you notice the common denominator in all these things, whether it's correction or insulting people or flattery? or all, What all those things have in common is this. The fool says things for their own sake. The wise person speaks for the sake of others. That's a main distinction that you'll see as we go through Proverbs. Are these words really for me or are they for them? That's a great question to ask before you say something. Jesus is our example here, isn't he? I mean, if anyone ever had the right thing to say, it was Jesus. And the word says of Jesus, as a prophecy from the book of Isaiah that Matthew quotes in chapter 12, that he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And so he stands in the presence of these petty Roman officials and these Jewish officials who mock his name 
and say dumb things to Almighty God. Like, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says in Matthew 27, you have said so. It goes on, it says, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. 1 Peter 2 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Why? When he suffered, he did not threaten. Why? It says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, who knew exactly what to say, said nothing in obedience to the Father's plan. And he obeyed and he knew Herod wasn't really interested. And you talk about overlooking offenses. Our Lord is our template. He's our example in this. So that's our first question. Should I say this at all? Question number two, is now the best time to speak? Is now the best time to speak? Proverbs 18, 13. You want to be like a wise counselor from the very start? Proverbs 18, 13 is a great place to be. This is going to be a painful one. I'm just warning you. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. He's talking about interrupting. Interrupting. Is now the best time to speak? The fool thinks, yes, as soon as I have a thought is the right time to speak. Even if it's interrupting what the other person says. But the wise person listens and judges and hears the whole of what a person is saying in order to, to make the right kind of judgment about what they're saying. Is now the best time to speak. Another example, this is in Proverbs 15, 23. This is so good. It says, to make an apt answer, or a well-timed answer, is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. Have you ever experienced that? When someone said the right thing at the right time to you in the right way, and it just ministered to you, it helped you, it served you. It was just the right thing that you needed to hear. I love this one. You're going to want to look this one up. Put a little star by it or something. Proverbs 25, 20. 2520 says, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. <laughs> I'll read that again. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Meaning the environment's wrong for what you're bringing to it, right? It's freezing outside. What are you doing without a shirt on? The person has a heavy heart. What are you doing singing to them? Again, you might be saying the right thing. You might be quoting the Bible. But it's just the wrong time. One of the things as we work with people who've lost uh, their homes and different things, is just, there's just a heaviness to what's going on in our county. 
And it's so interesting, like as I go throughout my day and then have these, these interactions that are just, they're just sobering. And they just remind you, there's a lot of hurting people. It takes you out of the just kind of blippy, dippy, unicorn, rainbow kind of world and just kind of reminds you, there's serious stuff going on. Saying the right thing at the right time. The fool doesn't wait for the right opportunity. He just jumps in. But the wise person times their words so they're helpful, so they're refreshing, so that they're apt. And here's one that'll just save your bacon so many times. Proverbs 18, 17. So helpful. This should be like my life verse as a pastor. It won't be, but I've joked about this. Someone asked me and actually said this one time as a joke. But it says this. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him, meaning half the story is not enough. Half the story is not enough. Recently, we know of something that happened in another ministry in another area, and we had all these people coming to us and all up in arms, and oh, leadership did this and leadership did that, which as a pastor, your, your initial reaction is like, I'm not getting the whole story. And I remember just asking a simple question to two or three different people who had come to us, so concerned and so alarmed about this issue, and I just said, have you talked with the leadership of the church directly? Have you heard the other side of the story? Have you given them an opportunity to respond to the accusations that you were laying out? And in each case, they hadn't. Now, I don't know the legitimacy of all that happened, and I don't even need to know. I just know that Proverbs 18, 17 is true. Right? Half the story is not enough. If you have half the story about something, you can't make a judgment about it. You just can't. Right? You're working off half the info. You literally don't have what you need to be wise about something. And there's something refreshing when, it, you, know, when you ask a person a question and, and they'll say, well, I just don't know enough about that to be able to tell you something you know, about it. So, is now the best time to speak? Is now the best time for the lecture? You know, parents, watch out for this. As a famous guest lecturer in my home, I say, <laughs> is now really the best time? Sometimes I'll be talking to Bree and I'll realize, and I'll say to her out loud, I'm monologuing, aren't I? She's like, like you could be a mannequin and it'd be the same. <laughs> Kindly, well, you know. Which means, yes, you are, right? <laughs> How about, how about the timing for advice? Is now the time for advice? Be careful with advice. If someone is not seeking advice, it's very likely they don't want it. And let me just say point blank. Prayer request time is not the time. As we get ready to go into life groups, when someone is requesting prayer for something, they're asking you to talk to God about them. They're not asking for your solution. That's why it's prayer request time, right? So we just need to use wisdom. How, is now the best time to, do, to say this? Interrupting, it's, it's never, I don't think, 
unless a train's coming and the person will die. You can interrupt a person then. But apart from that, um, saying the right thing at the right time, making a judgment, um, giving advice, these things, is now the best time? That's the second question. And again, Jesus is our example in this. I hadn't thought about this, but in the upper room discourse, there's a couple different times that Jesus says, like for example, in John 14, 29 through 31, he says, and now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 16, verses 12 through 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Basically, I trust the Holy Spirit's teaching ability, and now is just not the time. In 17.8, when he's praying to the Father, and he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me. I think meaning that the words that Jesus spoke in his life were God-ordained words. Every one of them. He emptied the bank of things he was supposed to say. And it was time to call it quits in terms of the physical presence and ministry. So Jesus is our example in this as well. Is now the best time to speak? Last question. Can I do what I say? Am I able to follow through on what I say? Proverbs 11.15. 11.15. I hope that you develop a love for the Proverbs. Uh, they are so helpful, and they just kind of punch you and let the bruise form and kind of let it settle, and they give you images that you can think about and chew on. This stuff isn't like immediately digestible stuff. It takes a lot of work in this out in your life to make these things really applicable, but they're great. 11.15. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm. But he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Hmm. Whoever puts up security, speaking probably of financial resources, for a stranger will surely suffer harm. Why? Because you're not sure if the other person is reliable or not. And you're putting your good name on their ability to respond to something, and you're not really sure that they have a good name or not. And so you may find yourself, you're not able to follow through on fully paying or fully whatever, taking care of that loan or whatever it is, because they're a stranger to you, that you don't know them very well. That's a pledge, it's a vow that you're kind of risking, am I going to be able to do this or not? Chapter 20 of 25. It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy. And to reflect only after making vows. Isn't that good? It's a snare to say rashly, it is holy. It is set apart. It's for a distinct purpose. I'm going to take this thing and use it for a specific purpose. To do that rashly and quickly is a foolish thing to do. And to, th- to reflect after making a vow. Have you ever thought about that? Oh God, every day... I'll do these 20 things. And you vow that and you say that and then afterwards you're like, there's no way. Why did I say that? That was silly. Not able to follow through. Chapter 25, verse 14. This is one that I, I have been guilty of. 
It says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Like clouds and wind without rain. Uh Uh-oh, it's coming. Huh, no rain. Is like a man who boasts of a gift. I'm going to give you this great thing and then nothing. In my less glamorous parenting moments, to drum up excitement with my children, I will say we're going to do things that are fantastic and fabulous, but are they're still to be determined. So, guys, this is going to be awesome tonight. We're going to have such a great time. What are we going to do? It, just don't worry. It's going to blow your mind. And I'm like, shoot, what are we going to do? <laughs> and then we're like playing at the park, and they're like, thanks, Dad. You know, wow. This is amazing. Talk about clouds without rain. Like, man, alive. So why, why do we commit to doing things? Why do we say things that we can't follow through on? Why would we be tempted to do that? Why wouldn't we just say what we can do? Because you don't want to feel bad right now. Right? You don't want to disappoint the person. But saying yes and not being able to do it is worse than saying no up front. Isn't it? To not follow up, to not follow through, it reminds us of what Jesus says, doesn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember what he says about oaths? He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God. Or by the earth, for it's the footstool, of, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And James picks up and says essentially the same thing in James 5. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Meaning... When we say things, they need to matter. They need to conform to reality as much as possible. We need to stick with what we say. One of the marks of the Christian is the integrity of our speech. The gospel gives us grace to admit our limitations, to to disappoint other people in order to please our God. Because our God is a truth-telling God. He has ultimate integrity, right? Everything he says, he does. So when we commit to things or we make pledges that we don't follow through on, it's basically the result of our pride. We think too highly of ourselves. Now, of course, there will be times that you have every reason to think that you can follow through on something, right? And you say it, and you won't be able to do it. That will happen to you. And you're not like a a terrible person who is not going to be forgiven and those things because of that. That's part of being in a fallen world. But the question is, is there a pattern there? Is the temptation to please people enough that you're willing to displease God by not being able to follow through or at least risk not being able to follow through? So when you say you'll spend time with people, do it. When you say that you'll serve once a month at the church... Do it. Come a little early. Be ready to serve. 
You're a steward of a gift to edify the church. And so sometimes I'll, I'll challenge people a little bit because they just think about church ministry as kind of volunteer work, like it's the same thing. And it's not. It's a whole different animal, isn't it? The Spirit of God has indwelt you and gifted you for a specific way to edify and build up people in this church. And there's a different kind of responsibility than volunteering and shelving books at the library, right? And that's a different kind of thing. So don't, don't just approach that. Like, let's, let's have our word be weighty. Everybody's got the same amount of time, right? Everyone's got the same amount. And you spend our time on what's important to you, you know? It's funny, I had a friend who, whenever I was late for something, and I'd rattle off excuses or whatever it was before I kind of learned just to own it, right? He'd say, you know, if you were, if you were getting on a flight somewhere, you'd have been there on time. Yeah, I would. <laughs> if you got like lower box seats at a Giants game, you would have been there an hour early. Yeah, okay, okay. You got me, all right, all right. I, I didn't want to be on time, <laughs> whatever it was. So just to say, let's, let's be a people who follow through on our word. And Jesus is our example in this as well. Jesus disappointed people a lot. No, I need to move on to the next town. No, I'm not going to do that miracle that you're asking. Jesus, yell at my brother because he's not splitting the inheritance with me. No, I'm going to warn you about what's going on in your heart. Jesus was okay disappointing people in order to do the Father's will. He's not just out there just dashing people's hopes just for no reason, right? He's doing his Father's will. So, let's just come back, look at the forest again. The wise wait when we speak, and fools don't wait. As we wait, we can ask ourselves these three questions. Should I say this at all? Is now the best time? And can I follow through on what I'm saying? Okay? Now, how does the gospel inform this? How is this not just like a self-help session, right? Like, oh, that's really wise. Well, the gospel not only makes us right with God, but it makes us increasingly righteous. It makes us like him, so he's a truth-telling God, and so we increasingly become a truth-telling people. He is a gracious God, and so we increasingly, our speech is seasoned with salt, or seasoned with grace, as it says. And waiting to speak, it's really hard to do, which is why we struggle with it so much. And spending your words on the good of others requires an inner strengthening by God, and is not going to be natural for you. And this is where the power of the gospel and the good news about what Jesus has done through the cross and resurrection matter, because that will provide the inner strengthening, the willingness to wait for the good of other people. Our gospel will help us wait. See, waiting to speak, it's a miniature form of crucifixion, of bearing a cross like Jesus did, right? It's saying, I will put my right opinion, my early judgment, aside for now. Or even if you insult me, and I, I, the eye for an eye, you know, principle, should be able to lash back at you and, and kind of exchange blows. I forsake that. I crucify that desire with my Lord Jesus because of the gospel. 
because I'm invested in the good of other people and I'm invested in a kingdom that's not of this world. That's what Jesus actually said to the Roman officials. My kingdom's not of this world. My disciples would have been fighting if this really mattered in this way, you know, to me. So that's how the gospel is related to this. It's a form of crucifixion. When you and I are dying to speak, we need God's grace to die. It's the reality. And then when God's Spirit grants us wisdom and we stay silent or we speak as fits the occasion and we're able to follow through and God is glorified and people start to to treat your words like they're weighty, He'll get the glory for that. And there's resurrection, you could say. There's both crucifixion and resurrection. So, what would we do from here? Let me just ask you this. How do you need God's help with this? Are you a rambler? Or the, the uh, kind of the, the clean version of this that I use is, I'm a verbal processor. <laughs> right? I'm narcissistic, but I like to call it verbal processing. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. There, there are those of us, I think, who it, it's just helpful to work that out. But we've got to be careful, right? Because that can mean our words matter very little. And we might precede it with things like, can I just bounce this off you? <laughs> or something, so you don't catch yourself doing that. But how do you need help? Are you an interrupter? Do you interrupt people? Are you an overcommitter? A flatterer? A babbler? A slanderer? Do you exaggerate the truth and bend it and make it into the shape that you need it to be for the person to accept it well? How do you need God's help with this? Maybe what you do is just start by adding one of these questions to your repertoire. Should I say this or should I not? Maybe that's how you start. You try silence one time. It won't kill you, I promise. To not say something back. Worst case, people will think you're wise. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. You win, either way, right? So just... Try silence. Reflect, pause, ponder. Add three seconds to the mix. Say to your wife in that heated exchange, I need some time to think this through so that I can spend my words well. And then don't wait forever. (laughs) I made that mistake before. Okay? Pray before you speak. Don't be afraid of words like, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know the answer to that. That's a, that's a pastoral problem, I think, where you just, you can, people can think that you're the expert at everything and be afraid of the words, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Should I say it? Should I say it now? Can I follow through? Maybe just one of those questions. That might be helpful. Just as an encouragement to, I, I know in talking about our tongues, it's like almost like everyone's like, oh, geez, I'm the worst person ever. <laughs> and so let me just encourage you. Uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to teach you in this. He's willing to work with you where you're at and to help you become more wise and more effective for him. Do you remember when uh, Jesus told the disciples, hey, don't plan ahead what you're going to say. Just don't even do that. Under this persecution kind of setting. 
The Spirit will help you. You'll be given the words that you need. In Ephesians 4, I find a lot of encouragement from this passage because it's talking about these kind of big and glorious things like put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You think, well, what does that look like? To put on the new self that's going to look like God's character and God's image. And that's kind of like fuzzy out there. And then it just talks about telling the truth. And don't sin with your mouth. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit with your words. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Talks about our words. So when we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is one way that God says he's going to do that, which is amazing. And this is the kind of thing where you, like, you gain an inch at a time, you know? You're not going to become like Yoda overnight with this stuff. You're going to say dumb things, and the whole foot's going to go in, and that's going to happen. But if on the whole, in general, you're increasingly working at this, God will help you. And you'll be wise, you'll be more effective in his kingdom. Jesus, one of the great promises in that upper room discourse is that the Holy Spirit will come and he'll keep teaching. He'll bring to remembrance the words that I've spoken, is what Jesus says. That's encouraging. You don't have to remember everything if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So there's hope, is what I'm saying. And what would our church be like if in five years' time, we were a lot more wise with our words in how we interacted with one another and how we interact with the community. And God gave us wisdom in this. I think that would be a powerful testimony to be people who never complain around the water cooler at work, who don't respond to insults on Facebook. It would be different. I can tell you that. So may God do that in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that the gospel not only makes us your child, but then you sit with us and teach us, and you raise us in the faith. So help us as your children, your sons and daughters, to, to receive these words from Proverbs. Maybe we just grab a half dozen of them and we... Um, We think on them hard and meditate on them. Now I want to pray Psalm 141, verse 3 for us. To set a guard over our mouths, O Lord, and keep watch on the doors of our lips. Help us in this, God. There's no way we can do this without you. So we just admit that and ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen.